a new move from the FTC could have some serious ripples across corporate America. Oh, yeah. Also could have some serious ripples across American labor. CNBC. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. And in a good way. I got the feeling of something right. Did you forget to mention that I'm part? I'm scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and round globe for you every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says everyone I know. Including me. From bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us and for playing along Desi Doyen. (laughs) I do appreciate it. Uh, All right, coming up, uh, you will be as shocked to learn as I was. That we have some actually good news for you today. Yay. When it comes to anti-competitive, monopolistic labor practices in this country and actions that the Joe Biden Federal Trade Commission is taking right now against it and on behalf of labor. What? Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Uh, given that we've you know now got an entire chamber in Congress hell-bent on obstructing progress in this country, and yes, rolling it back any way they can, much of our attention is likely to move toward efforts being made at the executive level, either through presidential actions or those taken by executive branch agencies, to enforce existing laws through rulemaking procedures and the enforcement of regulations, etc., to help the American people, if you can imagine such a thing. And to that end, as noted, some apparently very good news to begin the year that sort of got lost over the past week during the fight over the House Speaker. So we will have that apparently very good news coming up with my guest momentarily. Meanwhile, in less good news, or at least in more troubling news, I guess, I've uh, mentioned a few times over the past week or so since we returned from the holiday break as the 118th Congress tried to get underway or tried but failed at least over its first week because Republicans could not agree on the easy part, selecting a House speaker. 
nonetheless, I've mentioned a couple of times throughout that process that one of our major concerns this year is what is going to happen when it is time to raise the debt ceiling, the amount of money that the federal government is allowed by statute to borrow, to pay for stuff that it has already bought. It's really stupid that we have to do it. We're one of the only few civilized countries in the world who who does that. If you pay for some, if you bought something and you paid for it, then you need to have the money to cover what you paid for. Now, when Republicans are in the White House, none of this is ever ever a problem in the least. When they uh, the bar the borrowing limit needs to be raised, it gets raised. Democrats and Republicans alike will raise the debt ceiling as needed for a Republican in the White House to ensure that the US federal government does not default on what it owes. But when a Democrat is in the White House and Republicans control one or both chambers of Congress. Well, then, at least in recent years, as Republicans have become more and more radicalized and more and more extreme, they try to hold that debt limit hostage in exchange for any manner of things that they dream up knowing that if the debt limit is not raised, well, there will be a federal uh, a federal default. A federal default will happen, and a recession or a depression is likely to occur with it in the U.S. and then the entire globe, because so much of the entire globe is based on the U.S. economy. And therefore, Republicans see all of that not as a concern, but as an opportunity. <laughs> yes, an opportunity to take hostages. They see it as leverage to get the stuff that they want, which they usually pretend has something to do with raising the debt ceiling, even though it has nothing to do with that. But, you know, you don't you don't save money by not borrowing the money that is needed to pay for the stuff that you have already purchased. They, uh, you know, I heard uh, Kevin McCarthy recently use the credit card limit. Oh, if you give a, a, a credit card to your child and they keep maxing it out, you don't keep raising the debt limit. Well, actually, you do if, in fact, that child has purchased more than they are allowed to on that debt limit. You have to raise it in order to borrow the money to pay for what they actually purchased. At least unless it's stuff that you can return. As it turns <laughs> out, you can't return the stuff that the U.S. government uh, purchases, you know, whether it's stuff for defense or whether it's, you know, Social Security and Medicare and so forth. And roads and bridges. No, you can't return those to the store. One of the things that the Republican hardliners who held up Kevin McCarthy's seating as speaker had apparently forced him to agree to in exchange for allowing him to become speaker is that they will... Uh, the Republican Party will not allow a clean increase in the debt ceiling and that Kevin McCarthy will allow them to threaten the entire national and global economy in the bargain if the U.S. for the first time in its history actually defaults on its fiscal obligations. Even the threat of that happening back in 2011 when Barack Obama was in the White House 
Uh, result and and uh, Republicans had recently taken over uh, Congress. Even the threat of that potentially occurring resulted in credit bureaus actually lowering the credit ratings for U.S. bonds for the first time in history. It actually cost us billions of dollars just having that threat from Republicans. Well. I had been referring to the U.S. uh, running out of money this year and needing to raise the debt limit around September or so. Well, now it seems that could actually happen quite a bit sooner. Maybe. Just in case you'd like something to be alarmed and terrified about (laughs) today. Remember, we've got good news coming after this story, so just hang in there. Uh, But as AP reports today, the federal government is on track to max out on its $31.4 trillion borrowing authority as soon as this month. Now, I know that sounds bad, but wait, it's not yet that bad. Uh, That would start the clock on an expected standoff between President Biden and the new House Republican majority that will test both parties' ability to navigate a divided Washington with the fragile global economy at stake. Once the government bumps up against that cap, again, it could happen any time in the next few weeks. Later in the story, it actually says it could happen as soon as this week. Mm. Uh, The Treasury Department will then be unable to issue new debt without congressional action. But the department plans to deploy what are known as extraordinary measures to keep the government operating, at least for a while. AP notes it's hard to peg the date when the government will hit its debt ceiling because payments and receipts from uh, vary from day to day, especially with the April filing deadline for income taxes. The current balance suggests that the debt ceiling could be reached as early as this week or as late as March. When Treasury takes extraordinary measures, then, to keep the government running beyond that, it can do things like halt contributions to pension funds. It can borrow from uh, various other accounts to manage changes in the foreign exchange rate, freeing up cash to meet other obligations, etc., Treasury first used those uh, sorts of those extraordinary measures back in 1985 and has used them at least 16 times since then, according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which is a fiscal watchdog. But the extraordinary measures only work for so long and would then likely run out and put the U.S. at risk of default for the first time in U.S. history, now estimated sometime around the summer. Enjoy your summer vacation. <laughs> Once those uh, measures run out, however, uh, probably midsummer, according to this report, the government could be at risk of defaulting unless lawmakers and the president agree to lift the limit on the U.S. government's ability to borrow. The White House has insisted that it will not allow the nation's credit to be held captive to the demands of newly empowered GOP lawmakers, but the concessions made by new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in his arduous path to securing the job raise questions about whether he actually has the ability to cut any kind of deal in order to resolve a standoff here. McCarthy, who 
secured his post after 15 rounds of voting and major compromises with hardline members of his own caucus, has said that his fellow Republicans will only agree to increase the debt ceiling in return for spending cuts of some unspecified magnitude. And at the same time, a new rule that was agreed to by McCarthy to win his coveted seat as speaker would now allow any lawmaker to trigger a vote for McCarthy's removal, which could make even the most urgent of votes a dicey matter. So imagine that. No matter what it is that Kevin McCarthy says here, none of this is really up to him. Essentially, you know, these hardliners, if they're able to block a vote on these things by removing the House Speaker at any time, well, who knows? If any of this can happen, no matter what Kevin McCarthy may or may not have to say about it. McCarthy has said he's spoken with Joe Biden about the coming debt ceiling, told the president, quote, it doesn't have to come to that meaning a federal government shutdown over spending limits. But he was on uh, McCarthy was on Fox News this week talking to Hannity and saying, oh, this is our moment to change behavior. We're going to look at every single dollar spent. And again, it's stuff that has already been spent. So saying we won't pay for it doesn't actually change whether we have spent it. The stakes, notes AP, are treacherous. Past forecasts suggest a default could instantly bury the country in a deep recession. Right at a moment of slowing global growth as the U.S. and much of the world face high inflation because of the coronavirus pandemic, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and yes, because of corporate greed. Now, this is something that they're trying to do. The Republicans have floated this idea before the election with Senator Rick Scott, especially of Florida, floating the idea that this would be a wonderful opportunity to extract very painful cuts to your Social Security and Medicare to the and Medicaid as well. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that oh, they, they kind of force Democrats to join them and force Democrats to approve these cuts, even though, of course, Democrats are dead set against them. Well, when they're talking about these cuts, they're not talking about cuts to, you know, God forbid, uh, the Pentagon. They say that they're going to look at that, but that's not what this is actually sure going to they turn are. out to yes, be. Yes, they're going to look at that. They're right. going to look at that, wave at it as it goes across the highway, and that'll be that. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said uh, recently, quote, Congress is going to need to raise the debt limit without conditions, and it is just that simple, she said. Attempts to exploit the debt ceiling as leverage will not work, she insisted. There will be no hostage-taking. Though I'm not sure that the uh, Republicans actually agree with her on that point. On Capitol Hill, Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, for example, he's one of the McCarthy holdouts last week. He's an outspoken critic of government spending. He said he wouldn't rule out anything, um, including ousting McCarthy if McCarthy fails to live up to his pledge to seek spending cuts along with any debt limit increase. Now, what does one have to do with another? Uh, Actually, nothing at all. 
The debt limit is about raising the amount of money needed to pay for the stuff that Congress and the president have already approved and spent. So decreasing spending in the future does not change the amount of money needed now to service the existing debt. I'm sorry, and I guess I'm going to have to just keep repeating that and repeating that as all of this plays out. It's just that so they have nothing to do with each other, but Republicans see threatening the fiscal health of the United of the of the nation and of the globe. They see that as an opportunity. They do not see that as a problem. Chip Roy said we will use the tools of the House to enforce the terms of the agreement, the agreement between the hardliners and McCarthy. They they have the power over him not vice versa. They were the ones who allowed him to become speaker based on these agreements. Congressman Bob Good of Virginia, another one of those holdouts, said in a Fox News interview this week that the debt limit will be, quote, the real test, unquote, for Republicans who he says have to begin, quote, leveraging power to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And what do they need to accomplish? Well, they need to take away stuff that Americans like, as Desi said, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. The stuff that you earned, the stuff that you earned that was taken out of your paycheck. They want to make sure you don't get that back. Now, the debt ceiling, as I noted, should not be happening at all. It should not even be a thing. If we paid for it, then we should pay for it and borrow the money if we need to. And it is not a thing in most civilized countries. But it, what it does do is it encourages this kind of brinkmanship from lawmakers, as AP describes it. What they don't say is it encourages this sort of brinkmanship from Republican lawmakers in the pretend name of fiscal responsibility. But in fact, it's all political theater. But it is damn dangerous political theater. And it is wildly irresponsible. We are going to confront this, and I think the American people have called on us to confront this, said Republican House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. He's the second most powerful Republican in the House after McCarthy. Though, actually, no, I don't believe the American people have called on his party to tank the global economy. Again, because they do it all the time. If the government were to default, financial markets could be expected to crash. Several million workers could be laid off. The world could feel the aftershocks of the crisis for years to come. Moody's Analytics called this risk, quote, cataclysmic. Back in a 2021 forecast ahead of the previous debt ceiling increase, uh, suggesting that the resulting chaos would be due to government dysfunction rather than the underlying health of the U.S. economy, which is otherwise strong. Now, when Moody's talked about it back in 2021, ahead of the previous debt ceiling increase... From Republicans who tried to stop it back then, again... Well, no, they didn't. 2021, they, they let it go through. They had no choice because Democrats were in charge of both houses of Congress. Right. They tried to stop it. And luckily, Democrats made it go through because, anyway. Correct, because they didn't have the power. Right. They can only do this when they have the power to do it. 
or uh, when they have the power to do it when there's a Democrat in the White House. <laughs> yes. They had the power to do it at various points of the Trump administration, but they didn't. I think they raised it like three different times during uh, while Trump was in the White House. Didn't make a peep of it. Anyway, a more precise date on when the U.S. actually runs out of money and has to raise the borrowing authority and how long they can hold out with these so-called extraordinary measures. That will become available when the Congressional Budget Office updates its outlook later this month. But I wanted to let you know that at least when I read this story, sounds like it's coming a lot earlier than we had been hearing in recent weeks when they said, oh, it won't be until September. Well, we'll see could be midsummer now. Either way, lawmakers know the risks that they're uh, that they're taking with the livelihoods of people across the country in even having this dispute at all in even talking about it. Economists have have warned them plenty of times, but again, Republicans may not care. They may decide that a depression with a Democrat in the White House is exactly what they need to win back the White House in 2024. Just the ticket. Because that's how that party rolls these days. Gil Duran, a uh, California journalist posting on the uh, social media site Mastodon, he's, the, he's a co-writer of the FrameLab newsletter with author George Lakoff. He posted something recently that sort of strikes a chord in all of this. He said, uh, quote, I wrote this in 2011 when California Governor Jerry Brown was trying to negotiate with Republican legislature legislators to put a tax measure on the ballot at the time, uh, with the exception of some small California particularities. He notes it's pretty much the same playbook that Republicans are using against everyone, including themselves today. Now, Gil Duran actually posted all of this uh last week during the GOP on GOP fight over House Speaker, but I think it may come in handy as the fight over the debt limit and hell, frankly, everything at this point uh, comes to pass in the days and weeks and months ahead with the GOP retaking their slim majority in one chamber of Congress. So uh, this from uh, Gil Duran back in 2011, how to negotiate like a Republican. One, remember, you are not a minority party. You are a majority party trapped in a minority party's body. Therefore, <laughs> you are entitled to obtain every little item on your extreme agenda, despite the fact that most voters agree with your opponents. Why? Just because. That's why. Number two of how to negotiate like a Republican. Number two, threaten to push the entire city, council, state, nation over the cliff if your demands are not met. This is clearly an extreme and insensible position to take, but never mind that. Only by taking a murder-suicide approach to negotiating can you achieve maximum leverage and media drama. Overreach is imperative. Never, ever, actually compromise. Number three, however, if you find yourself drifting close to a compromise, stop. Compromise is for moderates, and you are an extremist, so act like one. The moment you detect major progress in negotiations, 
storm away from the table in a dramatic huff. Move the goalposts, draw a new line in the sand, accuse the other side of lacking seriousness and credibility, etc. Scream loud in targeted media forums in order to drown out any pesky voices of reason. All good advice for how to negotiate like a Republican. Yeah, that's spot on. Number four, blame the unions. Sure. You were the one backing away from hard-fought and time-consuming negotiations, but at this point, it's time to blame the unions and liberals for wanting to raise taxes and destroy the country, etc. It's not true, but don't worry, it'll get repeated. Make sure to throw in some serious attacks on the credibility of the chief executive. Calls for impeachment and or censure are especially effective ways to get into the media cycle. And yes, getting into the media cycle is really the most important thing here, isn't it? At least it is for these guys. That's how they govern. Not by facts, not by truth, not by negotiation, but by media cycle. Number five, return to negotiations, but bring a list of new and impossible demands. It is important to appear reasonable, especially if you are not. Therefore, draw up a laundry list of deal breakers and return to the table. Throw in the whole kitchen sink. Make it clear that you are willing to make a deal as long as you get everything that you want and the other side gets zilch. And finally, step number six, see step number one, which was, remember, you are not a minority party or a majority party trapped in a minority's party, minority party's body. Therefore, you are entitled to obtain every little item on your extreme agenda. So there you go. Another primer for you uh, as far as where things may be headed over the next few days and weeks and months in this country. This is what we are we are dealing with now. And in the case of the debt ceiling, that day may now be coming sooner rather than later. So I just wanted to make sure that you are buckled up for it whenever it does come, because it will not be fun. But at least maybe you will be better educated. Until then, however, let's have a bit more fun as the Biden administration's Federal Trade Commission is actually taking action as of this week to stop anti-competitive, anti-trade practices on behalf of labor. Can you imagine such a thing? I know. How often have you heard that sort of thing in recent, I don't know, decades Matt Kent, competition policy advocate for Public Citizen. He will join us next for that good news. Actually, he recently called it, quote, thrilling news. Prepare to be thrilled, or as close as we ever get to such things uh, (laughs) around here these days on this program. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Thrilling Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com slash donate 
to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Taking care of labor for a change. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. With control of the U.S. House now in the hands of a very narrow majority of Republican obstructionists, extremists, and hardliners, actual legislative progress on any number of things is, well, it's likely going, uh, it'll likely come to a full halt, I think, over the next two years power to get stuff done will shift to, well, the U.S. Senate for the approval of federal judges and other executive branch appointments and to the White House for executive actions and to executive branch agencies for same, including new rulemaking processes and enforcement of regulations in order to continue somehow moving things forward in this country, even as the Republican Party in the House is set on taking things backwards no matter how difficult that may be for them with an even smaller minority in the U.S. Senate this year for them and a Democrat still in the White House. But there is still quite a bit that can be done by both the president and his executive agencies, and I suspect we'll be focusing more and more on such actions in the coming days and weeks and months. One such piece of potentially encouraging action came from the Federal Trade Commission last week following a letter sent to Joe Biden's FTC chair, Lena Kahn, along with the agency's other commissioners. Uh, this letter was CC'd to agency bureaus like the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection and FTC Bureau of Competition. Yes, there is apparently such a thing. The letter was sent last month by more than two dozen nonpartisan good government groups and labor unions like the Economic Policy Institute, Revolving Door Project, National Employment Law Project, the powerful Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, Oxfam America, Communication Workers of America, and the AFL-CIO, among others. Its lead signatory for, the, for this letter was our good friends at the nonprofit public citizen. In the letter, the organizations ask the FTC to begin the rulemaking process required for banning employers' use of so-called non-compete agreements in employment contracts. Quote, tens of millions of workers across the U.S. economy remain vulnerable to economic disempowerment through employers' use of or threat to use non-compete clauses. The letter reads, Employers' use of non-compete clauses inflict real and substantial harms on the American worker and the overall U.S. economy without any legitimate justification, the letter uh, explains. By limiting workers' mobility, non-competes drive down wages, reduce the formation of new business, 
and keep workers stuck in unsafe or hostile workplaces, the groups write. These one-sided contracts can also unfairly restrain competition in downstream markets by allowing dominant firms to hold on to specialized workers. Think of monopolistic hospitals and surgeons. Instead of retaining workers through coercive non-compete clauses, employers should maintain a loyal workforce by offering good wages, regular raises and promotions and fair treatment. Well, there's an idea. The country, the brief letter concludes, is in the midst of a widespread re-empowerment of labor. The Biden administration has made clear that reviving employer competition for worker services is a key plank of its policy program. We cannot waste a historic opportunity to use federal authority to eliminate pernicious non-compete clauses. We call on the FTC to begin its important work by issuing a strong rule proposal now. Well, good news, apparently, in response to that letter from those uh, 20 or so good government and union groups. Late last week, Public Citizen issued a press release declaring, quote, following a December letter from consumer advocates and labor, the Federal Trade Commission today took the first step of banning the use of coercive anti-work non-competes in employment contracts. Matt Kent, Public Citizen's competition policy advocate, called the action, quote, thrilling and argues that the uh, FTC has begun the rulemaking process to ban non-competes with a strong proposal that, quote, makes the wait worthwhile. Kent lauded the federal agency for, quote, taking bold action to protect competition in the labor markets and and is calling on the FTC to, quote, issue a final rule that mirrors the quality of this initial effort. Joining us now to discuss what sounds at least like very good news to start the year, particularly in the long, moribund process of ensuring real competition in all sorts of markets by the Federal Trade Commission, is Matt Kent, competition policy advocate with Public Citizen and formerly a government affairs associate and lobbyist for various nonprofit associations on a wide range of legislative and regulatory issues. Oh, Mr. Kent, thank you for joining us on the broadcast with what sounds at least like some uh, very good news to kick off the year. Thanks for having me, Brad. Yeah, I mean, this is very encouraging. We sent the letter, uh, Public Citizen, along with a, a mm-hmm. pretty wide group of uh, nonprofit civil society groups and labor organizations to really push the FTC to move on this. Mm-hmm. Um, the story uh, actually starts back in 2019 when uh, Public Citizen, the Open Markets Institute, and many of the same folks uh, who were asking last December petitioned the FTC to, to move forward on, the, on this rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, for people's background, non-compete clauses are exactly what they're described as. They are built into employment contracts to require employees Mm -hmm. to not work against an employer, right? This was originally used as something for sort of higher-level senior executive types, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, to prevent them from going between large corporations, from boardroom to boardroom. Over the years and over the decades, employers realized that this is a this was a um, useful tactic in 
depressing workers' wages by taking away their leverage to move to another company. So you start to see non-compete agreements put into employment contracts for food service workers, for mm. uh, sandwich artists, yeah. you know, folks who are just trying to, to work day by day. And in a lot of cases, uh, security guards is another example, right? In a lot of cases, mm-hmm. folks would move to another job only to find out uh, that um, their, comp- their former employer was suing them for violating a non-compete, um, in a lot of cases, to, to make an example, and really sort of put the fear into workers, right, to, to cut down on their mobility. Um, you know, it's become yeah. a major problem, and we're really excited to see the FTC move forward. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was kind of surprised actually when I started uh, researching this, looking into what you guys were doing, because I, you know, I'm familiar with these clauses, as you say, for you know, big CEOs and you know, network news stars. They're or you know, they leave a, a, a network. They're not allowed to go work immediately for a competitor for a certain number of months. I was surprised to come to understand that these sort of clauses are permeating throughout all kinds of uh, employment uh, contracts. Do these clauses mean, in effect, that, like you say, a food service worker, if, if, a, if a worker wishes to leave a particular employer with a non-compete cl- uh, uh, contract, does it mean that they actually you know, either have to go without work entirely in their uh, chosen field or, or, or for a certain amount of, of time before, you know, or, or find something else to do entirely until that uh, period ends? That's right. Or um, just stay with their current job, which is what, what the employer wants to happen mm-hmm. uh, in the end. Another interesting aspect to this, and I think what's important, uh, be, what makes the FTC's so strong rule important is the fact that employers will often use the threat of enforcing a non-compete uh, to keep someone in, in a job, even if that clause is legally unenforceable in a state. So, for instance, California uh, outlaws non-competes in, in, many, in many instances. Mm. However, employers don't tell their employees that, right? They say, you have a non-compete, but they're not under the obligation mm. to tell their employee that if you went to court, it would be thrown out because ah. non-competes aren't uh, enforceable. So it's really right. the threat of the non-compete which is being used by the employers. The FTC rule, as currently proposed, would require employers to rescind non-competes that exist in a current employment contracts and actively tell their workers mm. that they're no longer on a, under a non-compete, which we think is very important. So it would make, uh, essentially, non-compete clauses unlawful uh, in, in all cases across all 50 states? That's right. As proposed right now, um, you know, we were, you know, uh, when you do this work, you're ready for disappointment, right? Mm-hmm. So we were, di- we, we, were yes. we were expecting to see a proposal from the FTC with common carve-outs and exceptions that we see in, in different states. Mm-hmm. There was a big fight in the District of Columbia recently about a non-compete rule that initially started very strong and business and special interests whittled it down so that it is sort of a shadow of itself, right? It, it almost, uh, there, there's almost no point to having it because right. it's so Swiss cheese, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could still happen. I mean, that's the battle ahead of us now at the FTC. But we are very, very um, excited by the fact that, as, as proposed right now, the FTC does not include any carve-outs uh, wow. or special exceptions that, that big business could really exploit. So mm-hmm. we're in a good place. There's a big battle ahead of us, but it's it's looking good on that in that sense and i want to talk about that battle matt kent but have uh, before we do have have this has this type of contract 
ever been illegal in the U.S., or is this sort of a, a, a new idea, so federal law is sort of catching up to this, and it's been up to the states up till now? That's right. There's never been a federal rule on this. Mm-hmm. Um, the FTC has done a lot of work over the past few years, and all, even in, back into the Trump administration, holding workshops, gathering evidence, building the case mm-hmm. for this rule. But as you say, it's true. On the state level where you know, uh, there has been action, um, it's extremely rare to see a full-out ban. In most cases, we see carve-outs or, or some sort of um, you know, uh, prevarication or, or modulation, uh, so to speak, on these things. Now, the rulemaking process, I know, is actually a, a, a long, drawn-out process, um, probably for good reason. Uh, but we are looking at uh, you know a long process here before this actually becomes a final rule, and I guess uh, you know goes into the federal registry, et cetera. How long does it take uh, before it would actually have what would essentially be the force of law at that uh, at that point? So I'll spare your, you and your listeners a longer um, uh, explanation of sort of the rulemaking background here, but suffice to say, the FTC has been for a long time hemmed in by extremely extremely long rulemaking procedures, right? Uh-huh. So uh, when we think of your standard federal agency, the Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. their rulemaking procedures, it takes about three years from end to end mm. to get something finalized, right? Mm-hmm. Under the uh, and that's FTC. from the, that's from the the transportation uh, bureau where you say it's normal. It, it takes longer right. at the FTC than three years. Okay. Yeah. So the the FTC has these special procedures called the Magnuson Moss procedures. Basically, the average shoots up to six years. Wow. This is like a big business industry lobbyist kill them by procedure mm, process. It's yeah. been going on for, for decades, right? Uh-huh. There's a lot of opportunities to slow rules down. What's exciting about this rule is that it is under a statutory authority called the uh, Unfair Methods of Competition, Section 5 authority, mm-hmm. that the FTC is essentially saying, we have the statutory authority to do rulemaking in the standard way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking more at, at the three, three-year timeline, mm-hmm. which sounds like a long time, right. but honestly, when it comes to the FTC, it's a pretty quick one, right? So this rule, when, um, when published in the Federal Register, which occurred this week, will um, have a 60-day comment period. There's likely that it'll be extended by 30 days or something like that. At that point, the FTC will take in all the comments uh, and then issue a final rule later this year. So we're looking at a pretty quick mm. turnaround. I think what's important at this moment, and, and the message I really want to get through uh, to your listeners, mm-hmm. is the FTC needs to hear from the public. Mm. The more I've done this work, uh, I've found that you talk to people in the street, uh, and uh, more more people than you think have a story about someone who's been stuck in a bad situation with a non-compete. The stories are out there. People feel afraid to talk about them because uh, they're worried about employer retribution, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the nature of the whole thing, right? But if uh, people have the ability to comment anonymously um, and, you know, happy to, uh, public citizen will be sharing out this information of, as to where to communicate the FTC, but people who have experiences with non-compete clauses in an employment contract affecting them or their family, um, now is the time to communicate that to the FTC as they make this rule. Uh, because public support is going to be going to be really important. The business community is going to come 
come hard for this one. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know if you have a, a, an easy address to share on the radio. Uh, if you don't, you know, please uh, send send a link or something uh, to mm-hmm. Desi and I when we post the show. Uh, yep. Tonight at brandblog.com, we'll certainly include that link. Um, your letter notes, there's also, uh, aside from big business coming after this, there's also a time issue here. Uh, the, the letter that you guys sent last month said each day that passes without a notice of public rulemaking weakens the likelihood of a robust final rule and increases the effort's exposure to a potential Congressional Review Act challenge post 2024. What is the uh, Congressional Review Act in this regard, and how does that pose a potential threat to this effort, as you say, post-2024? The Congressional Review Act is, uh, or the CRA, is a law that allows Congress to essentially repeal uh, an agency action. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the product of Newt Gingrich's contract with America. Um, It's a deregulatory tool. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it was used uh, by the, under the, the unified, during the Trump years, uh, way back, um, you know, we can all remember our nightmares of um, the CRA being used to repeal many, many Obama-era regulations. Mm-hmm. There's a time window um, associated with it. So basically, the, the, the bad CRA scenario for this rule is that it is finalized in the second half of next year. Mm. Um, at, and then... The Republicans gained both houses of Congress and the presidency. At that point, they could easily uh, repeal this rule. So, you know, <laughs> a lot of things have to happen to get to there. We really hope they don't. Um, not saying that they will, mm-hmm. um, but making the case to the FTC that time is of the essence because right. this thing could go sideways. Um, with the CRA pretty quickly. The sooner this can get into the books and finalized, uh, the better, the more difficult it is to reverse later on down the road. Uh, Matt Kent, the um, the Biden administration, uh, since they've come to power, I've heard uh, from a lot of progressives that they have been quite excited about Lena Khan being named as the chair of the uh, Federal Trade Commission. Uh, she's the one who you uh, wrote this letter to, along with the other commissioners. Do you share that excitement uh, about her appointment there? Is in, and is this the sort of action? Uh, is this sort of action one of the reasons I'm hearing from a lot of progressives uh, about Lena Khan? Yeah, um, Lena is certainly an all-star. Um, Lena Khan is is, is um, doing great work uh, as head of the FTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was appointed somewhat surprisingly. Um, She's a, a known in antitrust law um, circles, mm-hmm. um, really sort of made her name with a really sort of uh, seminal article on how Amazon is um, one of you know the modern monopolists mm-hmm. and, and breaks it down uh, that way. So um, from there, uh, came from Columbia Law School, was appointed to the FTC. Um, there was a lot of expectations coming in. Uh, as to what the FTC would do, and so far um, they've really walked the walk in our sense. Uh, they're looking at labor markets, right? They're looking at monopoly power. They're looking at mergers. They're they've uh, they're looking at uh, and taking action. I should say they're taking action on all these mm-hmm. things as well, addressing big tech, um, addressing corporate consolidation, and basically having an FTC that's more responsive to the needs of the public than the business community. 
Which, uh, if true, is very good news, as suggested in my opening uh, to this segment. Anti-competition, anti-trade, anti-monopoly laws, uh, though still theoretically on the books, I think, in this country, have have, have largely gone unenforced for decades now, allowing for powerful monopolies and a a lack of competition in all sorts of sectors across the American economy. Our friend uh, David Dayan, executive editor at... uh, the American Prospect wrote a great book about it recently, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Would we be too optimistic here to believe that now, uh, as as long as they haven't figured out how to get rid of Lena Khan, at least, that uh, federal agencies like the FTC and, God forbid, the Department of Justice under uh, Joe Biden might actually begin enforcing some of those anti-monopolistic practices uh, once again, under this administration, that again are already on the books. That's right, and that's what's happening, right? Um, Jonathan Cantor, who is uh, uh, in charge of the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division, along with Lena Khan, mm-hmm. um, have been taking aggressive actions to basically revitalize the Sherman Act and Clayton Act. Now, mm-hmm. these were, if uh, folks remember, these are laws that came into being in the age of the robber barons, right? Mm-hmm. In the turn of the century in America, when we were dealing with Standard Oils and all the yeah. <laughs> uh, Carnegie monopolies, uh, whomever. Well, l- today looks a lot like back then, right? Yeah. Um, so that is being recognized at the, at the highest levels of the government, including um, the Biden administration. They've issued an executive order on this. Um, you know, it's not Standard Oil now, it's big tech, mm-hmm. um, but there are also, you know, let's not forget about other sectors of the economy, um, thinking about things like uh, grocery stores, thinking yep. about things like food pack or meat packing. Um, you could go on and on. Honestly, it's, it's wild if you start looking at each sector of the economy mm-hmm. to realize um, that really we're talking about four companies at most sometimes. Yep. Um, so uh, it's exciting that... Um, you know the, the antitrust agencies are moving forward with enforcement. They're they're looking to block mergers. They're looking to put corporate America on notice. Part of the challenge is making courts cooperate with that. Conservatives mm-hmm. have built in a very strong um, standard into uh, it's called the consumer welfare standard, but essentially this idea into uh, the federal judiciary that consolidation is somehow good for consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that is antithetical uh, to um, you know, uh, the reality for most Americans, competition limits consumer choice, competition um, deteriorate, deteriorates uh, personal privacy. If you look at, or I'm sorry, the lack of competition deteriorates mm-hmm. personal privacy. If you look at the big tech um, sort of sector of the mm-hmm. economy, right? Like, there's a reason why co- the only companies that exist now are the ones premised on surveillance advertising, because they can mm-hmm. use their market power and anti-competitive methods to do away with any other competition. So we don't have a choice when we log on to the Internet but to give away all our personal information, right, right. because there's no competition in that sector. Right. So anyway, this <laughs> suffice well, to say the, the, the Biden administration is moving on these things. Well, and that's uh, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about. If there are, in fact, particular sectors, for example, like big tech uh, comes to mind, where anti competition efforts is seen as such a problem uh you know rightly or wrongly for by both major political parties that we might actually expect to see some cooperation to break up some of these overly powerful huge monopolies i mean 
you know, we, we hear Republicans complaining all the time about big tech. You suggest that with something like this anti-compete, uh, these anti-compete clauses in employment contracts, that Republicans and big business will come after that. But are there sectors, you, you know, where Republicans may join with Democrats? And yes, Lena Khan at the FTC to uh, try to uh, put the brakes on some of these monopolies? Well, it's complicated. Uh, let me, I would say that uh, we've been putting a lot of work into uh, legislation designed to break up big tech. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bill in the last Congress that got very close, um, sponsored by Amy Klobuchar and also sponsored by Chuck Grassley, um, mm-hmm. the Republican. Mm-hmm. So there is bipartisan agreement on these things. However, as we learned last Congress, as, as these bills got closer and closer, um, but we couldn't get them across the finish line, is that there, the devil is in the details. Mm. You know, everybody uh, from both sides of the aisle is mad at big tech, but they're mad at big tech for different reasons. <laughs> and I think working some of that out is mm-hmm. very possible and coming to a solution is possible. And I think, you know, maybe this is another episode, but um, mm. there will be a, a battle once again uh, on these bills in Congress. Um, and this time, you know, I think on the public interest side, we, we think we're we're moving in the right direction. You know, one of my one of my colleagues put it very well uh, at the end of um, the last congressional session when he said, "Big tech is not winning; they are just losing slowly." Mm. And that is certainly how we're looking at it. Uh, very good to know, uh, Matt Kent. Before I let you go here, uh, you had mentioned uh, grocery stores. There, uh, we recently heard about this. You know, what appears to be a ridiculous m- merger proposed between two of the largest grocery store conglomerates already in the nation, Kroger's and Albertsons, you know, combining dozens of different store names that are owned by each of them into a single entity. I cannot see how that would possibly be good for consumers. And yet, having watched the federal government for really so many decades now do nothing to prevent these sorts of companies from getting larger and larger, I cannot even imagine that they would prevent them from doing so now. Am I... Too cynical, or am I just the right amount of cynical here, Matt Kent? I think you're the right amount of cynical, and I, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the FTC plans to do on Kroger Albertson. Public Citizen has been very vocal uh, in opposing the merger for all the reasons um, you mentioned, mm-hmm. and, and certainly can talk more about that one because that is <laughs> it's sort of a head scratcher. I mean, especially on the West Coast, um, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily know um, how a local grocery store uh, that is not one, you know. Uh, Kroger or Albertson is supposed to survive under this, and yeah. the conditions for the workers uh, in both those stores, you know, is also you know comes into question. But um, I, I don't I don't know what the FTC or the DOJ is going to do on that. Um, but you know, we are certainly advocating uh, here in Washington that they use all the power that they have to stop that merger from happening. Matt Kent is a competition policy advocate with Public Citizen, the nonprofit consumer advocacy group that champions the public interest in the halls of power and has been doing so for uh, now over 50 years. We are grateful to them for that. Uh, you can find their important work at citizen.org, and you can find them on Twitter at public underscore citizen. You can also find Matt Kent on the Twitters as well. He is Kent 
underscore pub citizen. Matt Ken, I hope you will uh, stay in touch as all of this moves forward. Sounds like we have uh, a lot to learn from you and you cover, uh, you work on a lot of stuff that we cover frequently. So glad to have found you. Hope, look forward to uh, speaking to you more in the future, sir. Great. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Ma- Thanks Matt. You know, it's it's funny because Republicans love to say that they are pro competition. <laughs> I know. Pro free market, right? except when it comes to a worker. And God forbid any laborer should ever have to have that kind of free market control yeah. to set their, you know, to, to negotiate for their wages and stuff. Right. Well, they're only up to, uh, in favor of competition, up to a point. Up to the point where, <laughs> where it helps there is preferred any industries. competition at all. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. where it helps the oligarchs at all. I mean, it, yeah. is, it is really, truly remarkable how hard Republicans have worked over the decades to work against workers. I I continue to retain the capacity to be surprised (laughs) at how far Republicans will go to make sure workers get nothing. In fact, not just nothing, but get less than what they have today. Even while they're out there claiming we are looking out for the working people in this country. Uh, The forgotten man. Republican populism is forget about you, forget about the worker. Let's go ahead and try to, you know, hold the debt ceiling hostage so we can take away your Social Security and Medicare that you've already earned so far. And by the way, the the biggest Republican lobby in the country, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I believe they have already uh, threatened to go to court over this new rule. Yes. by the uh, by, the FTC that would make non compete clauses unlawful. They're going to sue to try to prevent that from happening. And Lord knows, you know, probably another years long fight, and they'll get to their business friendly U.S. Supreme, Supreme Court, Court, where yeah. the U.S. Chamber of Commerce never loses anymore, and uh, who knows what they'll be able to to, to pull off there. So. But it's worth trying, and I'm glad that the Biden Federal Trade Commission yep. is trying and is not being intimidated by this idea that, oh, it can never happen, so why try? Exactly. They're doing no. it anyway. Yeah, they are. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what else Lena Khan has up her sleeve. Joe Biden promised to be the most pro-union president ever, and I know that's a low bar, but <laughs> so far he's yeah, kind of living up to it. Keep going. Keep going. Anyway, we got to get out. We can't keep going. My thanks again to Matt Kent of Public Citizen and to our delightful, awesome producer, Desi Doyen, <laughs> and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or you just want to hear it again or you want to share it with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your enemies, you can always download it for free at bradblog.com. That's made possible by those of you kind enough to... Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Amazon and Mastodons, I am simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in 2.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day the Battle of the Running Bulls occurred at GM's Fisher Plant No. 2 in Flint, Michigan. It marked the turning point in the Great Flint sit-down strike. Company guards attempted to stop food deliveries to the strikers. When confronted, the guards cleared out and the food deliveries resumed. The guards, however, reported to the local police that strikers were holding them captive. The Flint police soon arrived, throwing tear gas into the picket lines and through plant windows. The sit-downers responded with plant fire hoses and slingshots loaded with door hinges. The police continued to launch tear gas at the picketers. Then the crowd pelted police with any debris they could find. It was at this point that the police began firing indiscriminately into the crowd, seriously wounding 16. Glenora Johnson of the Women's Auxiliary, speaking from the sound truck, called her women to action. She recalled, she recollected in 1976, quote, that when I appealed to the women of Flint, I said, there are women down here, the mothers of children, and I beg you to come down here and stand with your husbands, your loved ones, your brothers, your sweethearts. Then I saw the first woman struggling, and I noticed when she started to break through and come down that a cop grabbed her coat, and she just kept coming. As soon as that happened, other women broke through, and the cops did not want to fire into the backs of women. When the women did that, the men came naturally, and that was the end of the battle. The women's auxiliary would continue to play a vital role throughout the strike. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2.